the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The first Sunday after Trinity marks the layering of the Trinity season with the octave of Corpus Christi, which begins always on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday and goes for seven days after the feast day itself. That's why we're commemorating two days today and why this Sunday is alternatively called the Sunday in the octave of Corpus Christi. The overlap, though, is not a matter of coincidence and a matter of overly complicated liturgical tradition. It is the commingling of two vital, life-giving truths that we as Christians are always called to observe together. On the one hand, Trinity season leads us from the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost through the revelation and the vision of God as he is, three persons and one God. The first week after Pentecost is the Christian life in a nutshell. Being raised with Christ in Eastertide and then endowed with the Spirit at Pentecost, we are brought through the pilgrimage of life to behold God and worship him forever. As we learned last week, it is essential for us to receive the true vision of God as he actually is and to receive it continually as we live in the light of the fact that is given to us, the fact that he is three and that he is one without splitting or conflating. Even so, the knowledge of the Holy Trinity is not primarily a matter of establishing doctrine. We must remember that this truth is revealed as St. John is worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day while exiled on Patmos. This establishes another pattern. Revelation arises with and from diligent prayer. Christian doctrine does not create, but rather narrates Christian worship. The term orthodoxy, so popular in traditional circles, before it begins to describe any matter of doctrine or knowledge, is first and foremost a term that means right glory, or in our language, right worship. The importance of this ordering of things is why, on the other hand, we can only continue in Trinity Tide through the observance of Corpus Christi. The feast is always observed on a Thursday, and this is an homage to the events of Maundy Thursday during Holy Week. Every Thursday, in fact, can be seen as a minor commemoration of the events of Christ instituting the Eucharist and the night where he gives himself into the hands of his betrayers. During Corpus Christi, we're called as a church to attend to the significance of Christ having a body and of Christ giving that body. The true revelation of God comes to us always through Jesus, the Son of God. All truly Christian revelation is incarnational in the end. We do not believe in an idea. We believe in a person. We believe that God, the person, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
that to look at Jesus in his body is to look at God. To be in the spirit that is given at Pentecost is to be redirected from whatever else we're inclined to fixate on and look at back to Jesus in his body. Corpus Christi as a feast guides us to see that we can make no progress toward understanding God as Trinity unless we approach him through constant and personal communion through the embodied Christ in the Spirit. The Christian faith must always be personal, not as a matter of saying each of us gets to approach however we would like, but personal in the sense that God remains always personal, and we must always approach him as persons. The faith is a person-to-person matter. St. John stresses this point in his epistle lesson. No one has seen God at any time, he said. To understand this fully, we have to see how it springs from the teaching of last week's gospel lesson when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and said to him, quote, We speak what we know and we testify what we have seen. And then says to him, No man has ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. The knowledge of God, of who he actually is, and of the nature of God's kingdom, is a gift that only the Son of God can bring because he has seen all of these things for himself and brings this knowledge with him when he comes down among us. The Christian faith is not a matter of theological speculation or scholarly rigor. Such knowledge is given by the only one who can give this knowledge, the one who has seen it for himself. It is given, and so the only right response to it is to receive it. St. John stakes the whole Christian hope in this and says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. The gospel and the apostles' teaching are not a matter of hypothesis. They are God's own self-knowledge, known perfectly by the Son and the Spirit, who together deliver it to the apostles and the church continually in the unity of their prayer. True Christianity always resists abstraction. Truth comes from real persons to real people in a real time and a real place. St. John's insistence on the tangibility of revelation arises from his own experience of Jesus, of the evangelists, the most visceral accounts we get of encountering Jesus. John leaned on Jesus the night that Jesus created the Eucharist. John stood at the foot of the cross, right up at the foot of the cross, as blood and water poured from the side of Jesus, plausibly all over him. He laid the body of Jesus in the tomb. He ran to see the empty grave on the third day. 
He saw Jesus taken up to his throne from the Mount of Olives. And he saw him in his glorious body while he was celebrating the Eucharist on Patmos. For St. John, the body of Christ is one body. And that body is never a metaphor. What is given on Maundy Thursday is what is offered freely on Good Friday. It is what is buried and lays in the sleep of death on Holy Saturday and what is raised up on Easter Sunday. What ascends into heaven is what is given to the faithful continually on every Lord's Day to the end of time and what will stand among us in glory as judging king on the last day. They are all him, and he is in all of them. Corpus Christi is therefore a Eucharistic feast, reminding us of the incomprehensible privilege we enjoy every time we come to a liturgy. Christ becomes present among us in the sacrament by the Spirit, who unite us with the Father as we receive them. They make their home among us in a literal way, so that we might have a home among them in a literal way. This is the essence of all Christian life. It is the soul of what it means to be the body of Christ, the church. The real body of our ascended Lord in us makes us the real body of our Lord in the world. As St. John declares, as he is, so are we in the world. Revelation, ultimately, is granted for the purpose of this kind of formation. We are always given the vision of God as an invitation to come and see for ourselves, to know and to love God but we are also called immediately in the same moment to know and love one another. As we profess and as the deacon announces at every liturgy, the love for God and neighbor are the two great inseparable commandments on which everything hangs. This is where those who profess to love orthodoxy so often sadly go astray. Like we saw on the, in the events of Good Friday, some people can strive to be so pious that they will kill God himself when he comes down among them. In our own time and in our own context, we can strive for such absolute purity of faith and practice that we commit sacrilege against the image of God in our neighbor. As St. John reminds us, to call ourselves Christians while hating our neighbor makes us liars. It is most fitting, then, that we read this morning the gospel parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is often read in, I think, a softened sense of warning the rich to not neglect the poor, who are especially loved by God. And this is not wrong. But the deeper sense of this parable is a warning to those who would call themselves the people of God, but who, would with, who withhold at the same time redemption and renewal that comes to them from God, from those most in need of God's mercy. 
like the rich man of the parable, we feast sumptuously on the bread of heaven, the body of Christ, every week, and if we so seek it, every day. There are many in need of this feast just outside our door. And it is a lost opportunity when we do not invite those who need union and fellowship to come into our house and to share what we have. In our time, churches are trying to figure out how best to help the world. And it is sad to see how often we forget that to welcome the seeker to the Eucharistic feast is something that only the church can do. And it is something that must always be done. Before we can assist the other institutions of the world by imitating their work, we must attend to what is uniquely our work. We have the bread of life, and we have it so that we can feed people with it. It is no accident that this parable from St. Luke's Gospel mirrors the scene from St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles, when St. Peter does not fail to see the beggar at the gate of the house of God, the temple, who gives that man neither silver nor gold, does not even require that he stand and walk inside, but instead gives him everything he does have, He gives him the spirit of God, the wealth of heaven, and heals him. We cannot claim to know God and neglect those who need to know him. We cannot claim to be orthodox and fail to show mercy to others. Corpus Christi and the whole of Trinity Tide, they call us back to see that the central mystery of our faith is an unreserved offering of costly love for the life of the world. This is what we receive every week, and this is what we are called to give at every opportunity every week. God the Trinity is the God who is love. To behold him obliges us to receive him. To receive him is to become like him. To love God is to become the love of God. This is the work of Trinity Tide. It is the work for the remainder of the Christian year and for the whole of the Christian life. So let's get to it. As St. John writes, we love because he first loved us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.